So today we're going we're gonna to sort of continue just a little bit in what we talked about last week. Last week was about spiritual gifts, um, and um, I kind of flew through it a little bit, and I'm going to touch on it at the very beginning here, and then we're going to go on to the second half of chapter 12, which is possibly one of the greatest pictures of unity that, that, um, that exists in the, in the New Testament. So I'll open up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to read this, and we're going to get started. Father, we love you. You're um, a beautiful God, a wonderful creator, um, an amazing recreator and redeemer. And um, we ask that as we study your word this morning that you reveal something to us that we need to see, we need to hear something new, something fresh. Um, If there's any of us that are sort of missing a a vital piece of our faith to help us better love you and follow you and understand you, let let it be granted to us this morning. Um, If there's people who are here that are just wondering about um, Christianity and wondering about this, this, this ancient figure called Jesus, Lord, I, I ask that you would um, um, speak to them this morning, give them a little bit of understanding, more than they have now, and uh, give us first century um, eyes, let us be able to peer into the world in which these books were written, and let us bring it into the, the modern day, Lord, and, and know how to apply it in our lives, and I ask that you would help me speak clearly and communicate clearly, and Clear my mind of all the things that, uh, that are flooding it, and um, let me remember everything that I've studied. And, uh, we love you, God. In your name, amen. All right, so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 to 31. No, let's not read through 31. Let's read to verse 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, um, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one, one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the body were an eye, there would be, where, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And that and our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, uh, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, um, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. All right. So, last week we talked a little bit about um, about what he is sort of talking about here, the spiritual gifts, um, and how um, the spiritual gifts, they sort of, he sort of used a metaphor of, of a Roman garrison taking a city, conquering the city, bringing back a parade of all the things captured in the city, and the Roman emperor, as he did, giving out gifts to the people. Um, and Paul was saying, basically, Jesus has won the spiritual victory in the spiritual realm, and he brings back spiritual gifts, and he gives them to everybody in the church. It's a beautiful picture. Um, and so he continues here, um, he actually uses another secular metaphor here, and we're going to get to that in a second. Um, but when this happens, when the, when, when the church in Corinth specifically received all their spiritual gifts, 
They did what they seem to do every time anything happens. They start looking around and deciding, well, okay, so who's got the greatest gift? And who's got the least gift? Um, if you remember, this entire book, all the way up to this chapter, has been a constant um, battle against this idea of who's greater, who's less great, um, who's stronger, who's weaker, who's all this stuff. All of it has been this constant battle. Apparently, one of the main struggles in the church of Corinth was this pride and this sense of I have to be better than everyone else. It was this whole identity issue that he was dealing with. So the greatest gift to them, there was two gifts that were the greatest, and, and we tend to still look at these like this today in, in some parts of Christianity, that the greatest gifts of all are what? Healing in tongues. And this is how people, and sometimes people throw prophecy in there, and this is how people in the church in Corinth viewed the spiritual gifts. Well, I mean, I got a great gift. You know, discernment's great and all, but I'd really love to go out and heal people. Um, and the ones who could heal people were making a show of it, and they were, it was this very vain way of treating the spiritual gifts, all right? Um, so last week we talked about this, and I, I have no doubt that the people expected healing in their church. Um, healing um, in the first century, you know, we, we look at it now, and, and, and some people are skeptical of, of the gifts of healing. Some people are, are, are into it, and they believe in it, and they exercise it. Um, in the church in Corinth, there was not one person who questioned it. I'll tell you that. Um, mainly because it was, it was a, a readily available thing that happened in their culture, and it wasn't just the Christians that were healing people. There were um, pagan worshipers in the temple that had the gift of healing, and this is this is documented constantly. Um, and I have no doubt that the people expected healing in the church, miraculous healing, in the same way that, that it was a very, a very part of their community in the church and outside of the church. So miraculous healing was this big thing that, that happened everywhere. So the ancient idea of healing and medicine was very, very mystical. It was, um, they didn't know an awful lot about science. They didn't know an awful lot about, um, about the human body. They knew some, and some people were making really great strides in the first century um, to lay out, here's how the human body works. Um, but the ancient idea of healing and medicine was really very mystical. It, 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 was, it was more of a, of a spirituality mixed with understanding of the human body. Um, and so the focus was not, is miraculous healing real? Um, because the main question was, was, which gift is the greatest and most desired gift? And healing was, um, supposedly, as they wanted, the greatest gift. Um, so in the first century... Like I said, medicine and anatomy were just beginning to be dis- sort of discovered and unfolded. In those days, people's relationship with the sciences it was really, really interesting, and it was sort of very, very mixed with ancient Greek mythology. Um, <clears throat> there was, um, okay, I have a picture here. This is called the Ascalapion. It's, uh, it was the, um, the healing clinic of someone named Galen. You've probably heard of Galen. There's the medical institutes called Galen. Um, Galen was... Um, an ancient um, Greek figure. He was, he was an ancient doctor, a forerunner in medicine, if you will. Um, he was a physician. He was the god of medicine. Uh, he worked for the god of medicine known as Asclepius. <coughs> the sick would come to this temple and, um, <coughs> for healing, and they would take drugs, and they would head down into the catacombs beneath the temple. Um, it was called the Abaton, and they would sleep in these beds that were all lined up down in the catacombs, and they would have these visions of how they were to be healed after they took these drugs. Um, and one of the fascinating things is um, there were actually lots and lots of snakes down there, and they would crawl over the people, and they believed the snakes had the ability to communicate sort of with this god Ascalapius and, uh, and tell the people um, how to be healed. If, actually, if you look today at a lot of the, um, on the side of ambulances as they go by, what do they have? They have a pole, they have a staff with snakes around it. All right, all this goes back to 
um, Galen and, and Ascalapion. Um, <clears throat> this was all part of the ancient pagan sort of worship slash hospital thing that they had going on there. Um, and so they would have these visions of how they were to be healed, and they would go to Galen, and they'd say, Oscalopius told me that this is how I am to be healed. I'm supposed to do this, and this, and this, and I would be healed. And so, um, and they would do that. Galen would actually perform these things. And um, after they were healed, and many, many, many were, um, then their name and the way that they were healed, how Oscalopius told them to be healed, would be carved into a white stone, and it would be set up outside of the temple. Um, and we have lots of these stones today. They're still there. You can still go read them. How um, there's, I read one earlier this week about a guy who was blind, and it, it, it told him how to make a mixture of something and put it in his eyes, and he would be able to see. And it, apparently it worked. Um, so Paul was not any kind of skeptic of healing. The Christians then were not any skeptic of healing because they saw it everywhere, and they just figured it was a natural thing in the Christian church too, and it was. Um, and so actually, if you read Revelation chapter 2, 17, John writes this, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the, what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, this is a direct reference, um, scholars tell us, that to what was going on there. He says, I'm going to heal your church. If you have an ear to hear, you have eyes to see um, my gospel, hear the gospel and exercise it. Um, I will heal you. It's a direct reference in rebellion to what was going on there. And instead of, uh, instead of some name of some pagan god, or instead of your own name, one name's going to be honored. It's going to be the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and so it's a really brilliant little reference there. So um, <clears throat> of all of the gifts that were desired, healing has always been the most desired gift. Um, and still today, healing in tongues are the most desired gifts that people talk about. And I, I had... I've had a lot of phone calls and conversations this week with people who said, well, I have friends who tell me that if I don't, you know, speak in tongues or this or that, then I'm not um, a Christian. I don't have salvation. Um, first off, that's bad theology. That's new theology. That's, that's brand new. It's maybe, maybe 150 years old. Um, and it's, it doesn't line up with what the scriptures teach about simply having faith and, and, and Jesus being your Savior and your Lord. Um, uh, it, it's not depending on anything that you can do. It's what Christ does. Um, it's just simply a gift, and, and Paul says in the very next chapter that love is actually the greatest gift. Um, and there's actually another place I was talking to somebody last week that reminded me, Paul, uh, Paul sort of mentions, I would rather speak three coherent words than have um, this other gift so that I could communicate the gospel. So obviously it is not, these are not something that is required for salvation. Um, so all of this really, no matter how much grace is given equally to people, no matter how many spiritual gifts are given out and, and, and scattered freely to all of us, what we tend to do is pick up one, and they're all free. They were all just given to us, and we picked one up and we say, well, this is obviously the greatest. Well, they were all free. Well, no, but this is the greatest one, obviously. It, it's the one I possess, and it's the greatest. See? See how that works? Because I... I would always have the best gift. And, and, and it is not, and, and Paul is trying to level out and get rid of these arguments. They're like, your grace from God is better than someone else's grace from God. We all have the same Lord, the same Christ. We are part of one body. Um, <clears throat> human vanity is a huge problem in humanity. It's one of its greatest sins. It's one of the things that tears apart the church more than anything. It's one of the main things that Paul confronts in all of these chapters of 1 Corinthians, all right? Um, I read a quote from Pascal this week goes like this. <clears throat> Vanity is so anchored in the heart of man that a soldier, a soldier's servant, a cook, a porter brags and wished, wishes to have his admirers. Even philosophers wish for them. Those who write against it want to have the glory of having written well, and those who read it desire the glory of having read it. I who write this 
have perhaps this desire and perhaps those who will read it. And I love that. Everyone does everything that they do for vanity. That's how the human heart works. People who talk about how vanity is, is, is something we shouldn't have might even be saying that so that everyone will look at them and admire them. Um, he admits here when he's writing about how terrible vanity is, he says, I might even be writing this um, so that people will admire me. And then when people write against me, they might, they might actually say, um, they might actually have in their hearts writing against him so people will admire them. And then he says, even those who read my writing might be reading it so that people will admire them. He writes about how this is so wrapped up in the human heart. Everything that we do, if we read a good book, we want everyone to know how great it was so that people will admire us. It, it's, and if, if we like a band, we want other people to know that we like a certain band so we can be associated with them. So, we like, so people will like us for liking something. It's really weird. Um, it's, it's like inception, vainception. All right, so, <laughs> all right. No matter what level people are at, no matter what gifts they have or lack, no matter how much or little money we have, we all desire to have our admirers and our followers. Even the lowest of the low desires to speak well so other servants will look at him. Um, and so naturally, when we receive our spiritual gifts in the church, we're all equipped by these abilities that strengthen the church and so we can do God's work. And the first thing we do is try to find out who's most important. We look around at a church filled with sinners that God has saved, made into servants, and we look around and say, well, who's doing the most here, and who's the most vital, and who's the least vital, and who doesn't matter? And Paul is, is sick of this mindset. He's sick of these ideas. He's sick of the people treating each other this way. When we, want to, we want people to admire us for the free things that we've received. We want people to look up to us because of our free gifts. A lack of unity and a desire to be looked up to is a huge problem in the church today. It always has been, and it causes division. So Paul wants desperately for these people to receive the spirit of unity, and, um, and he has this overwhelming desire for them to, to come together and to, to conquer all of this. You know? He says healing is just as vital as teaching. Knowledge is just as important as discernment. Um, as a matter of fact, one of these can't even exercise without the other one exercising with it. It'll just do damage. They all need to be working together. Um, and so the most famous picture of unity in, in all of the scriptures, Old or New Testament, is this picture right here at the second half of verse 12. And he actually does this a couple more times in other places in scripture because um, it's, it's such a brilliant argument, all right? Um, so the thing is, like last week, like I talked about with the spiritual gifts, how this sort of, uh, the, the, the Christians were very rebellious against Rome and they took these ideas and said, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, Caesar brings back really great earthly gifts for his people, but when we gather to worship our Savior, um, and our Lord, we receive spiritual gifts that are amazing. And so Paul, again, launches off and takes this um, sort of secular idea and, and makes it a Christian thing and argues against it out of rebellion. There's a man named Plato, obviously you've all heard of Plato, um, and um, especially if you've seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, he wrote a book once called The Timaeus of Plato. Um, it drew a very famous picture about how society works um, and about how all of the world works and geography. Um, it's really a fascinating kind of read in, 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 in like a, a weird, twisted kind of way. Um, and so he paints this picture of how, um, and, and this was hundreds of years before, before Paul, he paints the picture of, of the earth and a city sort of as a human body. Um, and he writes about it as this. Um, the head is the citadel, the neck um, of the body is the isthmus and the narrow routes between the head and the body. Um, the heart is the fountain of the body. Um, the pores are the lanes of the body. The veins are the canals of the body. And, and, and he, he goes on to talk about how um, 
the rich and the poor are both necessary for a society to exist. Um, he talks about how, um, he, he lays out all these different arguments that like no one is indispensable. No one. Um, and this caught on and, and people held to this and pe- this is how people talked about unity. If we want to have unity, we go back to Plato's idea of the body and, and we're all important. And, and so Paul, in light of this, he draws this picture of the church um, that the body consists of many parts and there's in this body an essential unity, all right? Um, in the church, however, it's completely different and it has much, much, much more meaning because Paul says, and it's not just um, a metaphoric body that we're talking about. I'm not just, want you to think of any, I want you to think of, of a specific body, the body of Christ. I want you to think of Jesus as he walked the earth. His head, his hands, his legs, his feet, his, uh, um, his eyes, his mouth, his ears, everything about Jesus. Um, and he says, the Christian church makes up the body of Christ. And this is how he describes this. Um, and the reason this has much more meaning is because we're worshiping a God who was actually here in physical form. He had a physical body just 20 to 25 years before this letter was written. So he takes sort of Plato's idea and says, you have no idea how real that actually is. God actually came and walked on the body of a man. He's no longer here right now. His name was Jesus. He died, but he rose again, and then he ascended. And he left his spirit here, sort of his mind here inside of us. And he says, and yeah, many parts do make up a body, but it's the body of Christ. It's not just some random person. Um, you know, Jesus is no longer here in bodily form. He's not there with them. They could not look him in the eye and speak with him. They couldn't hear his voice anymore or feel his touch anymore. Um, but Paul takes this metaphor to say, oh, yes, you can hear him. And yes, you can look him in the eye. Yes, you can feel the touch of Christ still today, even though he's not here. All right? Um, <clears throat> And Paul argues that, that you, as the church, are the body of Christ, that he is still here. You are the body of the Messiah. And there's this huge thought here. Christ is no longer in, in this world in bodily form. He was here with a human body, hands and feet, walking, touching, talking to people. Um, and the Christians, were, in their minds, were like, well, he's not here anymore. And Paul says, oh, yes, he is here. He's very much here. Um, and this thought is huge. Christ is no longer here on the earth. Therefore, if Christ wants to do something, if he wants a task done within this world, he has to find somebody to do it. If he wants a child taught, if Jesus would like to look at a child and say, I'd like to sit down and teach this child, well, Jesus isn't here in bodily form. So he has to get somebody to do it. That person becomes his body. That person sitting there teaching this child um, about the ways of life, about, about God, of how to read and write. That person is Jesus there. Um, if Jesus wants a sick person cured, he has to find a physician or a surgeon to do this for him, to be his hands, to heal them. If he wants his story told, he has to find a person to proclaim his story. And this is a huge idea in Christianity that I don't think people get. They think Christianity is about morality. It's about, well, here's a big set of things that I'm supposed to do and not supposed to do, and so I'm just going to do them. No, you're here to be Jesus, not all by yourself, a part of the work of Jesus. The body of Christ is here in this room, and he's given us all gifts and, and commands us to work together as people are added, more gifts are brought in, and we are collectively the body of Christ, and the things that we do, we are doing as if Jesus himself was doing that. So that whole idea of, remember that in, in, in the mid-90s, there was these bracelets, WWJD? It, it really would be, what is Jesus doing 
now, because he is here, he is working. And the question is, are you looking around, are you seeing what Jesus is doing, and are you taking part in it? Do you see that you yourself, in these times when you are serving your fellow man, that you are Jesus? You are his body in those moments. Do you, do you understand that? Do you get that? Do you understand how big that is? It, it gives meaning to every little tiny thing that you do. Our hands are his hands. Our feet are his feet. Our voice is his voice. Every Christian is a part of the body of Christ. Their spiritual gifts, really all they do is, is they do the work of revealing to you which part of the body you are. All right, that gives a lot more meaning behind all the spiritual gifts. Have you ever felt like the work that you were doing was in the grand scheme of things really unimportant? All I do is pick somebody up and I bring them to church. Or um, all I do is mow the lawn for a for an elderly widow over here. All I do is this and that. And you look around and you see people um, doing these great things for God and, and, and you wonder, I, I wish there was something that I could do. I wish there was some way that I could get involved. I feel like, I, feel like I, I would like to be used in such a bigger way, but literally, you are Jesus mowing the lawn of his, of his elderly widowed daughter so that she can feel a little love and a little comfort. Think about that. All I do is teach eight people once a week. I seem to remember Jesus doing this. Gathering 12 people, gathering just a few in somebody's living room and teaching them about God. uh, I I don't do a huge, big, important work and I see other people doing these huge, big, important works. Um, Their works are no more important than yours. None. Their works wouldn't even be possible if you weren't doing yours. At all. All right? The truth is that there's... there were simple little jobs that if Jesus were still on this earth in bodily form walking around that he would want to do for his people. Jesus wants you to brew a pot of coffee for some people. Jesus wants you to pick up a person that doesn't have a car and take them to work. Jesus, Jesus would like to do these things himself, but he has no body here except for you. So when you do them, you are acting as him. All right? All of this is wrapped up in the image of God. Um, and so when you have back at, the, at Genesis, it's, it's almost as if Genesis was foretelling this. When Gen- Genesis says, and God created man in his own image. How far has that come to where we are the body of Christ with his spirit inside of us leading us and we're doing his work? All right. Um, so Paul was setting out to stop the pride war that was being waged. So, so he makes a statement like this, and this is a big one. For the body does not consist of one member but many. And if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not the, an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make, any, make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would, the sense of, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Um, and he goes on like this, no one can fully do their job without you doing yours, without you exercising your own gifts. As small as you think they are, your gifts make everyone else's gifts vital. They make them useful. Um, this has everything to do with how you were made in the image of God with the same attributes of God. So there's this idea, if you're ever in my um, um, membership class, um, I kind of talk about the Trinity. Trinity is a very mystical thing. It's very difficult to understand because there's nothing like it. You have nothing, no metaphors. You have nothing to compare it to. Um, theologians from, from very, very early on have used um, a word to describe the relationship of the Trinity, um, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they use this word, um, perichoresis. All right. It's a Greek word. It basically means, it means um, 
It comes from a, a Greek verb, perichorein, which means to contain um, or to, uh, to penetrate or to indwell, to permeate, um, interpenetrating. It sort of has this idea of, of, of each member of the Trinity giving to one and receiving from the other at the same time. Um, and so it's, it's this really brilliant way of describing how they are fully fulfilled, God is fully fulfilled in his three-part person um, because it is his nature to be giving and giving and giving. And, and this means that God is complete and fully um, content and satisfied. All right, now, um, if you didn't quite get that, if that's a little out of your um, realm, each person wholly envelops, um, sort of, and is wholly enveloped by the other. So there's a similar Greek word um, that, that is used oftentimes to describe what is going on here. The action, um, perichorioin, and I'm probably butchering that. Yeah, I am. Um, but it, it basically means, it means to dance around. So perichoresis, the second half of that choresis is where we get our English word for choreography. All right dancing, working together in unison. Um, and so quickly, laymen, not theologians, would hear these terms and they would start talking about, well, it's the dance of God. And I thought that was brilliant when I first heard that. Um, it's, it's all three of them doing this dance all together at the same time where each one is filling the next, each one is filling the next, and so all are filled. What this means is it is in the nature of God to give of himself to give, 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 give. It is in God's nature to give. If God is not a giving God, God cannot be God. It is in his nature to be giving. All right, God is not here to take, take, take. He's here to give. All right, now this is fascinating because we are made, all through scriptures it tells us, we are made in the image of God. So what does that mean for us? It is part of our nature. One of the reasons we were created, it's part of our DNA to give to other people to serve, to not focus on ourselves, but to focus on the person next to us, in front of us. If we are all doing this, we are doing this dance of God in the same way that we are created in his image. Because if we're created in the image of God, then we have this, we contain this. And believe it or not, you all have seen the repercussions of us going against our very nature. People get very, very rich, they get very, very famous, and they end up jumping off bridges. or killing themselves with shotguns in their living room and leaving notes or going into rehab, or depression, being on medications. Why? That person has spent their entire life filling themselves. When you are filling yourself, and you are not living in the image of the true humanity that you were made to be, and giving of yourself, you're taking water from one end of the pool, and you're filling it in the other. And perhaps the most rational metaphor I could come up with, because I have kids, was Beauty and the Beast, the teapot. All right? The fat little lady teapot. <laughs> I picture her, you know, she's a servant. Okay, I picture her pouring herself a cup of tea and then drinking it, all right? Pouring a cup of tea in it, out of herself and drinking it back. She's never going to be full. Nothing's ever going to happen. She will never be satisfied, that poor little pink teapot, because she cannot fill herself. We cannot fill ourselves. If you are living your life trying to fill yourself, you will be miserable you will not ever be happy, ever. Because you're going against your very nature, and when you're going against your very nature, it wears you down and it destroys you. You were created to live selfless. You were created in the image of God to do this dance of God. 
to give of yourself to other people. This is an attribute of God that we act out in the church. Each person, just like the Trinity, giving and pouring into the life of the other. Each person both being served and serving. Each person relying on others. Um, each, and only when every member of the body is acting this way can all of the body function as one. Churches fall apart when church members get focused on what they want. Where marriages fall apart when partners start focusing on what they should get out of the marriage. Relationships with people fall apart when they, people decide, I'm not being pursued, I'm not being loved. When we stop filling other people, we're going against our very created nature. We will be miserable. We were made to serve God and we were made to serve others. The repercussions of this idea is that, that we were made to serve others is huge because it means paradoxically if we try to put our own happiness ahead of our own obedience to God, our own, our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature and we become ultimately miserable. How long are we gonna live our lives and witness people playing this cycle out in front of us over and over and over again, striving for their own happiness, finding out that they are miserable and hitting rock bottom? only to climb out of it and try again. Jesus himself, he, he, he taught this idea. Matthew 16, 15, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is at the essence of the teaching of Christ. This is what this was about. Tim Keller actually takes this passage and he translates it a little differently, which I thought I just hit. Here it comes. If you seek happiness more than you seek me, This is is his translation of what Jesus was saying. If you seek happiness more than you seek me, you will have neither. But if you seek to serve me more than serve happiness, you will have both. I encourage you to try this. Is your marriage struggling? Is it difficult? Is you have relationships that are difficult? Have you tried acting in accordance with your human nature that you were created to have? Have you tried loving them and serving them selflessly despite what you are getting in return? it actually makes you very happy. You know, some people serve people uh, so that later on they can say, I served you and you didn't respond the right way. Or they're, they're looking for some sort of response. Selflessly, without response, serve the other person and watch what happens to your joy and your happiness. What I've noticed when I'm exercising this in my marriage, I'm infinitely more happy than when I sit back and say, Oh, I wish things were a little, I wish this, I wish this, I wish, the, I wish the kids would act like this, and I wish, if I just strive to make my whole family happy, there is a profound happiness that happens in our relationships. It's real, it happens. Maybe you're here today and, and you've had dreams when you were young, you had these huge dreams, you set out on this journey, you decided when you were a kid, I'm gonna be this, all right? Uh, and you told yourself, when I get this, my life will be complete, I will be happy and I will be content, and here you are, you're there, you have it. You've achieved what you set out to do and you're no more satisfied and no more joyful or content in your life than you were before you started. This is what I hear from people all the time. I wanted to have this, I got that, it didn't work out so well. Serving yourself. 
You're taking one water from one end of your pool, you're feeding the other. It's, you're not doing anything for everyone else. It was all about you all along, and that's why you are now miserable. As long as your dream, dreams revolve around your own personal happiness and serving yourself, they will not satisfy. They go against your very nature as a human being. You were created to serve others, to serve God. You were created to pour into someone else. And if you spend your life going against your very nature, you cannot expect for all of your natural human desires to be fulfilled. They will not be fulfilled. They will not. And this is why you're unsatisfied. Your marriage is in shambles because both of you have been serving yourselves. Your, your search for a spouse isn't working out because all you want is someone who meets all of your needs. You don't, the way Jesus loves us is not the way that we love other people. Have you noticed that? Jesus looks at us and says, here's what I'm gonna do for them, here's what I'm gonna do for them. Despite what they're doing for me, I'm gonna give, 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 give. Grace, 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 grace. How do we love people? We talk about them like, oh, they're wonderful. They do this for me and 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 this for me. And it goes on and on and on and on. It's really, you don't love them. You love yourself and you love that someone else is giving you everything that you want. The people that we love are the people that we pour into. Our love, for some reason, is so backwards and so screwed up that it does not emulate Christ. And if we could get back to this idea of how Christ loves people, that we could actually feel content in the love that we have found. <clears throat> Not just spiritual, I'm talking on earth. You're unsatisfied with your friendships because they don't do this or that for you, they don't pursue you, they don't make the effort, they, they embarrass you maybe. It has nothing to do with them, it's all about you. And as long as all of your efforts and energy are being poured into filling your own cup, you will never be full. And this is not how God is. It is not, is not how you were made to live. <clears throat> Scriptures are clear. If you seek first the kingdom of God, all of these other things are going to be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so Paul goes on a little farther towards the end of this great metaphor. He says something a little like this. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and there, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So <clears throat> he says, and the body is so, um, has such unity that when one person is suffering, if one person is maybe suffering, maybe, maybe a better translation would be if one person is like failing, like not using their gifts, not exercising the gifts of the spirit, or it, it literally could be, there's like debates on, on how to really interpret that. It, it, could, it could mean a person is just really struggling spiritually, lacking faith, when that person is doing that, the whole community feels it. There is something missing, and so a whole community comes around. It, it, anyone who's ever experienced um, like a toothache or like a, like a broken finger, like this is a great description. It seems like it's such a small thing, a finger and a tooth, but you cannot go about your day in a happy manner when you have these things, all right? You, you don't ever say, you don't ever describe it like, like that one member, like my, my rear top molar, it's aching. You say, I am in pain. I, all of me. Yes, all of me is in pain right now because of this stupid thing. Um, I broke my little pinky. I, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. I'm just going to go to bed, lay there till it's done, because as I walk, it throbs. <laughs> all right? Um, this is how we are. As pathetic as we are, it's a perfect picture of the body of Christ. When one person is just suffering and in pain, um, the whole body is going to be hindered by it and not fully. That's why we care for each other. That's why we lift each other up. That's why we seek each other out. All right? So the entire passage here is written to be a definitive answer to all of their pride and their bickering. Who is the greatest? 
Who possesses the greatest gift and abilities? Who does the most ministry? Who is the most important to the church? As long as we're asking these questions, we're filling ourselves. As long as we're asking these questions, we are seeking for, for our own greatness. All right, we're trying to find our place on the social ladder, all right, so that we can look down at who's below us. Anyone who is asking these questions is, always has themselves on the front of their mind, um, and they're never gonna find happiness, not in their job, not in their ministry, not in their church, not in their marriage, not in life. Nowhere in life will you be happy as long as that part of your life is centered around yourself, ever. We cannot go about our lives thinking about ourselves. We must accept the fact that trying to fill ourselves is just like taking water from one end of the pool and pouring it in the other. We will never be filled, and our thoughts must be for others. C.S. Lewis writes about this in a veiled kind of way, and he nails it at the very end. He, He writes this. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you are making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without having noticed it. The principle runs through life from top to bottom. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Love your life. I'm sorry. Um, Lose. It's supposed to be lose right there. My bad. That completely changes the entire meaning of this. (laughs) Lose your life, and you will save it. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. If you want to feel love, this has got to be a song. You have to give love, right? That has to be, right? (laughs) Sure it is. If not, get on that. If you want happiness, make people happy. If you want joy, give people joy. If you want to be filled, fill other people. This is perfectly in line with how God exists. This is perfectly in line with how the church works. This is in line with how marriage works, family, relationships, everything, because it's part of your human nature, because you were created in the image of God who is doing the dance of God, and we are supposed to be doing that as well, all right? We're going to take communion. We do this every single week. It's a vital part of our community. We take some time, and uh, we spend time repenting of, of the ways that we have failed in light of the scriptures that we've read, um, and what we've talked about, and what we've sang about, and... Um, we, uh, we come out, if we take a piece of bread, the bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for all of us. Um, the wine is the, is the body of Christ spilled for all of us. And we take it and we dip it in there. Um, and we remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, the suffering of Christ. And we take it inside of us as if we're taking the gospel down inside of us. And we say, Jesus, I remember what you did. Thank you. What Jesus did was a selfless act made for your salvation. And you better believe it pleased him to do it. All right, so... Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are a good God, a holy, wonderful Savior. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Teach us to be like you in your image, selfless. Teach us to to all be um, in unison as if it was choreographed doing this wonderful serving dance with each other. And only then will we all be fulfilled. Teach us about this, Lord. In your name, amen.